0: I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. For the first time in history, the United States faces two major power adversaries armed with nuclear weapons. China is rapidly expanding its nuclear forces. And in Russia, Putin announced in February that the country would suspend its participation in the last remaining U.S.-Russia arms control pact. To talk with us about what this means for the U.S. and for the world, We're joined by Brad Roberts, director of the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Lab and an affiliated researcher at IGCC. Brad served in the Obama administration as deputy assistant secretary of defense for nuclear and missile defense policy and is a longtime trusted advisor to U.S. allies and partners around the world. The center he directs recently released a report called China's Emergence as a Second Nuclear Peer implications for U.S. nuclear deterrence strategy, and we'll talk with him about that report. We're honored to have you on the program, Brad. Thanks for being with us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for the interest in our work.
0: So there are many things looming over the increasingly fraught relationship between the U.S. and China. Uh, There's the Taiwan issue, fierce economic competition, Um, although it feels like it's been months, uh, Chinese surveillance balloons floating above sensitive U.S. military sites. And another thing is China's ambition to become a nuclear peer with the U.S. and Russia, something that it is thought, I think, to be on track potentially to do. So to start us off today, can you tell us, like, where is China today? What do we know about what capabilities they have? And where do they seem to be going?
1: So when I started working on China nuclear topics back in 1996 and 97, it was generally understood that China had approximately 20 missiles equipped with nuclear weapons capable of reaching the United States. Uh, Today, they are completing three fields of missile silos that will um, expand to approximately 360 the number of missiles, nuclear tip missiles capable of reaching the United States from Chinese territory. And then in addition, of course, they've been building their nuclear-armed submarines that give them the additional means to attack us or our allies from, from the sea. There's some doubt about, of course, where where that number of 360 is in the near term, whether that's a year or two or three away. There's some doubt, of course, about where they're headed afterwards. They're, they're investing to have the infrastructure to build many additional warheads, whether they would be deployed, how they would be deployed, these are open questions. Uh, let's let's assume that the New START treaty actually expires in 2026, and by 2026, China will be uh, will have the same number of delivery systems, or nearly so, as Russia and the United States. It won't have as many nuclear weapons, but it will have a good number deployed. The uh, we have been talking as an expert community in the United States for twenty years about a possible Chinese sprint to nuclear parity, and now that they appear to be sprinting, we assume it's to parity, qualitative and quantitative equivalency with the forces of the United States and Russia. They don't talk about it that way. Uh, I've participated in back channel dialogues with the People's Liberation Army experts on this topic for twenty years, and I'm. Fairly certain I never once heard them use the word parity. That may be exactly where they're headed. My my point is we don't know. And we have a counter data point, which is from mm-hmm. President Xi Jinping. When he became president in a decade ago, he was the first Chinese president to say that China's nuclear weapons underwrite China's great power status. He has publicly stated that he's pursuing a quote significant increase in China's strategic potential in a manner consistent with his expectation that China will be, quote, at the center of the world stage, comma, in the dominant position by twenty thirty-five or twenty forty nine. That doesn't sound like parody to me. So I'm not, I'm not predicting a buildup. I'm just saying that there's uncertainty about where China's headed.
0: The new CGSR report summarizes the last you know five decades of US policy and saying that over this time the US has worked towards a strategy of risk reduction and relationship building um, and tried to improve security by moving towards disarmament and minimizing the importance of nuclear weapons in its relationships with both Russia and China. But the report says right in the introduction, quote, it has little to show for this effort. So can you give us the nutshell version of what U.S. policy has been and what ways has that policy failed? and in what ways has it succeeded?
1: When the Cold War ended, we were eager to seize every opportunity to move away from Cold War nuclear confrontation. There were many unilateral actions taken to reduce and redeploy nuclear weapons. We had many thousands of nuclear weapons deployed overseas, tactical nuclear weapons. Those all came home in the early 1990s and were destroyed. And from a nuclear deterrence perspective, The focus shifted onto the then immediately new problem, rogue states, so-called, with weapons of mass destruction and long-range missiles. There was Saddam Hussein, the epitome of a new problem. and We didn't want um, to focus on the use of nuclear weapons to deter a nuclear-arming Iraq. We wanted to rely on missile defense and conventional weapons because these seemed more effective and credible. And in our relationships with Russia. We said, we no longer have a deterrence relationship with Russia. We don't need to deter Russia. Uh, the George W. Bush administration said uh, we have we need a new strategic framework that's about rogue states and that in the U.S.-Russia relationship pushes nuclear weapons into the background, out of the foreground. And it said further that with China, it, it wanted to keep them in the background. Well, Russia and China were uncomfortable with America's pursuit of the kind of strategic posture it said it needed for rogue states. Missile defenses and non-nuclear strike capabilities, they saw as threatening to them, as dangerous. Uh, and they saw the they perceived the United States to be willing to use its power to their disadvantage. So I was a part of the Obama administration. People uh, who, who were around in that time will remember Hillary Clinton's reset button. We had the reset button out to try and improve the relationship with Russia. Well, while we were hitting the reset button, President Putin, we now know, was violating the INF treaty made the decision in two thousand eight to uh, interfere in our domestic politics was killing his opponents abroad and was getting ready for what he subsequently announced as a campaign under the banner of new rules or no rules. President Putin and President Xi perceived the rules of the world order that we've tried to create as being damaging to their the interests of their countries as, as they understand them so the the u s effort to conciliate with Russia and China and to move nuclear weapons out of the foreground of these political relationships and push them into the background just didn't work. Russia and China's leaders were not prepared to um, accept whatever risks they saw by going in that direction and, and made the opposite decision to build up, diversify, improve their their nuclear arsenals. And that wouldn't be terribly troubling to us if they were status quo powers. But uh, clearly, President Putin is a revisionist leader who wants to destroy the existing European security architecture, and Xi Jinping has very much the same goal in Asia.
0: You mentioned deterrence, a central pillar of U.S. nuclear security strategy, which has a lot to do with, you know, signaling, you know, sort of reading the signs of your adversaries. And so in this context, it's easy to imagine states misinterpreting each other's actions, which could then lead to escalation and mistakes. What evidence do we have that the U.S. understands China's thinking? What can we look at to say that we have confidence that we're interpreting their actions and behaviors correctly?
1: Well, the report is about China's emergence as a second nuclear peer. It's principally about the problem of having two peers as opposed to one, two nuclear peers. We we were after the, the question of, does the, the, the emergence of a second peer, whoever it might be, impact our nuclear deterrence strategy and posture in some meaningful way. And we found some ways that it does and some ways in which it doesn't. So we've called this the one plus one equals three problem. We're looking at the three in that equation. And we have also tried to remind the readers of the report that when we frame the problem this way and people think about Russia, they tend to think of Russia as kind of a familiar problem we we understand. That's not the tone of the report. The tone of the report is no, we've discovered that President Putin is a man who can badly miscalculate, who is willing to run very high nuclear risks. This is this is a different problem from the one that Russia presented to us until uh, two years ago. But but to your question, any student of international relations knows that um, that miscommunication and uh, misperception and h- hidden agendas are a part of uh, every strategic relationship. Every crisis is made of these things. Uh, I think. President Xi has gone out of his way to explain his worldview. He's gone out of his way to convey his confidence in China's power, nu- nuclear and otherwise. They have explained their approach to conflict with us in great detail, because it's in their interest that we understand that we should be deterred. That's that's what they're after. Uh, so both Russia and China, and, and a dozen years ago, issued major reports on their their military doctrine and strategy, primarily for in English for the purpose of our understanding, how much progress they've made. Um, Now, how would they act in crisis? Would they actually cross a a line that might call into question our nuclear employment? Well, that may be a secret, but it's probably a mystery even to them. They don't know exactly what they would do in crisis and war, we don't know exactly what we would do. And we can be confident that signals we send will be misread. I can give you one example from the uh, Obama administration. Uh, we, we conducted a review of both nuclear policy and missile defense policy. And in our missile defense policy, we issued the report, uh, and it, among other things, it said that um, the United States uh, did not seek a missile defense posture for the protection of the homeland that would be credible against the large-scale strikes of which Russia and China are capable. To deter those attacks, we would rely on nuclear deterrence, which would be credible against large-scale strikes. So it was intended to be a message of strategic restraint. Missile defense is not about China. The message received in Beijing was, aha, they're appeasing us. It pushed some more. So in subsequent strategic documents of the Obama administration, we couldn't quite repeat the language that we had put in the Missile Defense Review. The Chinese had received a message that we we hadn't sent. And this happens all the time.
0: The U.S. has had significant nuclear weapons superiority in terms of China, and why do you think China is choosing to compete, in essence, in this space where we have such superiority at present, instead of competing in a, in a different field where maybe it could more easily outperform us, where, there, where the gap wasn't so large?
1: First of all, they are competing in those other areas. They have uh, built a very impressive Navy. They're building a very impressive Air Force. They have the world's premier s- space program, except for its human component. Their ability to wage war in space is exceptional. Um, their cyber program is world class. So we're focused on the nuclear piece because that really gets Americans' attention. The other pieces don't as much. And and there's a message here for our adversaries that they should make they should ring the, the nuclear alarm bell louder because that's what gets America's attention. Part of what perplexes me is they would've, they would have they would have disagreed with something you said right up front, which is we've always been in a position of superiority would say, of course, that's true numerically, but in terms of strategic balance of power, their military dictionary defines parity as a condition in which there is a rough equivalency of strategic potential. Uh, and from their perspective, historically, there was an equivalent credibility to their deterrent strategy and ours. Their nuclear strategy was very simple. If America struck at those 20 nuclear-tipped ICBMs, with nuclear weapons. We Americans would kill a lot of Chinese along the way, uh, and they could threaten to smuggle a nuclear weapon into Los Angeles Harbor or <clears throat> somewhere else weeks or months or years later and kill a lot of people in exchange. That would look credible to us. We, we were deterred by the threat of one weapon getting through sooner or later, whereas we were deterring them in a manner they considered foolishly excessive. So they didn't perceive a position of nuclear inferiority. That's part of what perplexes me about their buildup.
0: So as you said, for years, China has had a, a smallish number of nuclear weapons. But in the last few years, China has has suddenly acted as if its nuclear arsenal is not sufficient. And it's not totally clear why. I was reading a piece in Foreign Policy magazine speculating, you know, is this just a long-term, part of a, long, a long-term strategy that is now reaching its next step? Is it simply that as China has become stronger, it's become bolder? Is it because the domestic power structure has changed and Xi Jinping can do whatever he wants? Is it an attempt to you know, create an arms race and bankrupt the U.S.? All kinds of question marks. You said you, you yourself have been surprised. I mean, what what do you make of it? What, what do you think?
1: I think we don't know the answers to those questions, and that's the world we live in. There, there are very few things in Public policy that that have a single explanation. Um, when governments act, it's usually as a result of a coalescence of various interests uh, and imperatives. Really, they've gone from twenty to three hundred and sixty, while our missile defense posture has gone from zero to forty-four. And while we've been talking about conventional prompt global strikes since nineteen eighty-eight, we still don't have any. So, for me, it's hard to find the logic of. These changes are driven by changes in the U.S. posture. I think there's a stronger political argument, I think, when Xi Jinping says, um, hey, I want to be at the center of the world stage in the dominant position. Design me a nuclear posture for that. I think we're seeing the emergence of a, a more confident China, uh, certainly a more powerful China, whether it is also a, a, a and, and, and many Chinese have said, in a future world where there's a more equal balance of power, China will feel more comfortable and at ease, and will be a, a a more cooperative partner. I hope that's so. But but the 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 behavior we're so far seeing is not cooperative. It's confrontational.
0: So the report concludes that the existing U.S. nuclear forces are not sufficient to meet today's challenges, and certainly not sufficient to meet. The challenges of tomorrow. And it recommends that the U.S. should plan and prepare to deploy additional warheads and bombs from the reserve, should upload weapons once it's no longer bound by the constraints of New START, which, as you said, would be in 2026, presumably. Is there a risk that this approach would just uh, drive an arms race or accelerate what is already happening?
1: Of course, there's that risk. Public policy is very often uh, the process of making choices between least bad option. Uh, and there are risks in anything the U.S. might choose to do. And there are, there are risks in doing nothing. People listen to our recommendations and think, my God, this is all crazy and hard and it's going to make the problem worse. Let's just wait and see. Well, our group doesn't like the wait and see strategy because we can already see. Um, we can see um, significant emerging threat and an erosion of strategic stability uh, and and new difficulties for our allies and hundreds of new weapons pointed at America. And I want I want to be clear about what we're recommending where it fits in the spectrum of recommendation. Some people say, look, China's going to have thousands of nuclear weapons in the middle 2030s. That's the worst case. We should be aimed at solving that problem. We should be building up thousands of new nuclear weapons to to and, in anticipation of their rise. We're not recommending that. That would generate an arms race. That would be not contribute to the security of the United States or its allies. On the other extreme, people are saying, just accept more risk in our deterrence strategy. Don't need to respond to China. We already have too many nuclear weapons. Well, we've accepted a lot of risk in our nuclear deterrence strategy. Uh, some of that is evident in President Putin's boastfulness with nuclear weapons in Ukraine. While while President Putin has, quote, built a nuclear scalpel for every military problem in Europe, we have... Um, not build a new nuclear weapon. Our newest nuclear weapon was built in 1990. We have allowed our nuclear systems to age dramatically uh, to the point where we're probably going to lose capability before it's replaced by by modern systems. That that doesn't send a message of political resolve to Presidents Putin and Xi. Uh, and it certainly leaves our some of our allies very anxious. And the, the problem we're most worried about in our current The the risk that we've accepted that most troubles us is the risk we've accepted in our extended nuclear deterrence not the triad, the central strategic systems, but the capabilities that we have to forward deploy weapons into regions in support of our allies. When the Cold War ended, we brought all those weapons home, except for a few bombs in Europe, and we bet on our strategic systems as tools of extended deterrence. But our allies prize forward deployed capability. You see this in the debate in South Korea today. And a rising discussion in Japan about uh, the the possible future redeployment of nuclear weapons into Asia by the United States. Uh, and there's a discussion among allies in Europe about is is NATO's posture designed in 1991 fit for purpose in today's world? So we're recommending we we're trying to recommend a middle path that says yes you don't need you don't need the big arms race solution but you can't just stand by and do nothing. That will that will erode the security environment further. There's a middle course that involves some response with uh, increases to the force uh, in combination with an arms control proposal to Russia and China that that would be fair to all three and allow us to avoid an arms race.
0: There are such strong norms against certainly use of nuclear weapons, but also in favor of disarmament. Do you think that domestic politics in the U.S. will support your group's agenda. There are a number of things in the report that you say, you know, Congress needs to do and should approve. How realistic do you think that is, given the climate, the, the political climate in the U.S.?
1: Well, we're all inclined to wring our hands on this, aren't we? Ring our hands about the political climate in the country. Overall, I'm discouraged. I find one note of encouragement which is that for the last twelve years, the um, nuclear policy of three very different administrations has been almost identical, uh, and the Congress has supported on a bipartisan basis the main elements of the the policies adopted by these administrations. We, in fact, have a good deal of bipartisanship in this area. We've done a very good job for the last decade of of ignoring those, uh, ignoring the changes in the security environment when the Cold War ended. There were many changes in the security environment that were so positive. And from a nuclear perspective, those changes enabled a great many changes to our policy and our posture, changes that everyone was pleased to make. Today's security environment has changes that are as far reaching as the changes at the end of the Cold War. The implications for our nuclear policy and posture are likely to be equally wide ranging. But unfortunately, they're all changes we don't want to make. And for Presidents Putin and Xi, this will be a test of their assessment that we are a country in decline and retreat. And um, if we fail to respond to the challenge they've, they've created very clearly in the nuclear domain over the last decade, um, whatever we do subsequently will be from a position where we are seen to be not credible. There are many changes in the security environment that are not dire. There are some that are positive, um, but, uh, but the relationships with Russia and China and North Korea have all deteriorated significantly. They're all much more forward-leaning and and challenging our interests. And they've put nuclear weapons at the center of their strategies for doing these things. Uh, And that means that any conflict with them is going to have a nuclear dimension. That, That doesn't mean nuclear weapons would be employed, but there will be a lot of nuclear threats and a lot of nuclear threats to our allies and possibly limited strikes in the region. And these are unpleasant realities that we ignore at our peril.
0: You wrote a book in 2015 called The Case for Nuclear Weapons in the 21st Century. That was not too long after Obama's famous Prague speech in which he was envisioning you know, a world free of nuclear weapons. And only a few years after uh, the New START Treaty went into force, which committed the U.S. and Russia to reduce the number of nuclear weapons, you were making a contrarian argument about the utility of nuclear weapons that wasn't popular necessarily at the time. The world has changed <laughs> a lot since then. I'm just curious. I mean, do you feel somewhat vindicated?
1: Oh, no, I don't, I don't think of it that way. I, I so much wish that I'd been proven wrong, but uh, sales continue to bump up each year a little bit because it's assigned in more and more classrooms. It was also just recently translated into Japanese. It's a sign of how much the times are changing. Uh, I'm just back from from a trip to Japan and to Hiroshima, where I participated as the keynote speaker in what was allegedly the first conference on nuclear deterrence in, in Hiroshima.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And you were recently awarded the Order of the Rising Sun, an honor bestowed by the Prime Minister of Japan, which is rarely given to citizens of other countries.
1: I was. Thank you for mentioning that. What, what made the, the workshop in Hiroshima interesting was the questions that came from the floor. Very well attended event. Lots of students present. Uh, obviously, very strong pro-disarmament worldview. Uh, but the questions were all, how do I square that worldview with the reality we now see around us? Nuclear, nuclear weapons right across the sea in North Korea, missiles going over Japan fired from North Korea. China, you know, Russia still has a part of Japan uh from nineteen forty-five. So they, they were struggling with how do how do we put these two things together. Uh and and I I've encountered that repeatedly in Japan. Uh, there there is a sea change in response to the, the new nuclear threats created by Russia, China, and and North Korea. President Obama's speech is sort of like a Rorschach test. People remember there were two halves to it, and, and people remember one half or the other half. It was both a commitment to take uh, practical steps towards the long-term goal of disarmament uh, and a commitment to ensure that so long as nuclear weapons remain, the United States would maintain a deterrent that was safe, secure, and effective, and provide that protection to our allies. Uh, and we w- we were asked as an administration to do both of those things. Uh, and, and, and did both, you know, much to the dissatisfaction of both sides of the political spectrum, that didn't like what was being done for the other. The fact that it took so long to negotiate a new start when all we were doing was taking a little teeny tiny step. We, we the Obama administration, were prepared to go further. The Russians weren't. But it was still over a year of grudging, stiff negotiation, And they had so many grievances about so many things. And uh, similarly, recall you may recall President Obama's inaugural speech. He, he offered an open hand to uh, North Korea, had nothing to show for it. Uh, and, and a similar open hand to China, no dialogue. The, the warning signs were already there. And I think there, there are more warning signs now.
0: In an ideal world, you know, a career trajectory would sort of just go on a linear path up, up and up in terms of supporting whatever whatever global problem or whatever societal problem a person has chosen to tackle through their professional life the ideal would be that 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 problem is addressed more and more and more, and things get better and better and better over the course of a career. Your career path in nuclear weapons security has seen sort of highs and lows. And uh, right now, um, you know, you are a veteran um, in this space. And now at this stage in your career, things are actually sort of moving into a place where they're get- things are getting worse. And I just wanted to ask you what how you think about that you know I, I just always find it interesting to talk to people about who've given their life to something how you grapple with those those things that are not in our control
1: first of all by not dwelling on it uh, this has become a very common topic especially in more more private exchanges with people it was a topic of much discussion in the hiroshima gathering being focused on the question of uh, how how to find hope in, in dark times is uh, uh, helps helps you to do so. Um, um, I mean, th- these are hard problems; they're not insoluble problems, uh, and and they require um, curious minds, disciplined minds, uh, creative people, uh, and um, those people exist in abundance in America and, and elsewhere. So, uh, ultimately, I believe in our capacity, and, and I, I as individuals, and I believe in the capacity of our institutions to meet these challenges.
0: Brad Roberts, Director of the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. The report, China's Emergence as a Second Nuclear Peer, is available for download on their website. Brad, thank you for being with us on Talking Policy. It's so good to talk with you.
1: Thanks. It's my pleasure. It's great to engage with you. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks, everybody, for listening in. I hope this was interesting.
0: Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.